0: Hi, I'm Caitlin. Welcome to Better Words. Hey. Hey. (laughs) It's
1: our last time recording
0: together. I know. This is our last in-person intro. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Well,
1: in-person for us, not for you guys. Yeah. I feel like though when we do Skype, we should do the video call Skype so we can still see each other. So it will still be like yeah. in person for us. Yeah, it'll still be audio for oh. for everyone listening. But yeah. I'm so emotional today, and I haven't even had time to stop and think about it because like mm. we've got so much to do this week. I know um, I can't like yeah, it must
0: be so crazy busy and like. But I have to say, I was just saying this to you mm. in the car. They have packed up their whole house with such an impressive speed yeah like I'm so impressed I went there on Saturday on Sunday and today is Tuesday and we're recording this intro for this week and like the house
1: is like empty and on Saturday we had a party where at and least one was... person vomited so yeah yeah it's been
0: a crazy week <laughs> It has been. but
1: like we had a party Saturday we did not do anything Saturday yeah. afternoon from you know most of saturday we didn't actually because we had to go out to the beach to sell jack's motorbike Mm. so basically all of saturday we didn't get to do anything mostly it all happened on sunday
0: sunday and monday and monday yeah
1: and it's just been crazy um we had to leave Percy at Jack's dad's house this morning. Aww. And I'm really upset so but like I haven't goodbye. had time to think about it. And it's just like, did you take like a thousand photos of him before? Yeah. Aww. And he was so upset, like he knew something was happening. I'm gonna start crying now. I don't know if Caitlin <laughs> can tell, but like my eyes are getting all glassy and like he was so limp in um, Jack's dad's hand. Like he's usually really squirmy and stuff, yeah. and he just like he could, was like, so tell still. That this, yeah,
0: he was like different. Yeah, Aww. and he was
1: just like staring at us, and I'm like, I was like, oh my god, is this how parents feel when they like put their kids in daycare? Only worse because I'm not gonna <laughs> see him for two years. Like I'm just, I'm crying now. <laughs> oh, it's just been really, really. That was really hard.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it would be hard when, like, you know, I guess sometimes with animals, people would say, like, oh, you know, they don't, they don't know. He totally But knew. he totally knew. He
1: knew. And, like, when we were packing up the house, um, he wasn't running inside like he usually would mm. try to. He was just standing at the door, like, looking even more worried than his little pug face usually is. Uh. Like, you could tell he was just, like, well, something is wrong. Like, he knew. Mm. And I'm just so upset now. That's right.
0: Well, I have a story about me crying on the weekend that I will tell. Yes. Um, This is nowhere near, like, as prominent (laughs) or anything, but I finished watching The Office. So as all of these bloody sitcoms do, they start out with these, like, you know, like, lovable characters that you, like, enjoy and everything. But even... The unlikable and slightly annoying ones. I mean, The Office, they have like this huge cast of characters Mm. that sort of come and go, like, you know, the focus is on them that day at work or whatever. Like, they, and even the annoying and unlikable ones, like at the beginning, you know, you grow to love them and you get attached (laughs) over nine seasons. And then the whole last season of the show, I'm like crying because, like, they're getting married, they're having Mm. babies. You did know, anyone die? Oh, there's a gecko there.
1: Um, yeah. Did anyone die? Like at least in comedies, people usually don't die.
0: No, no one died. Good. Yeah. Um, but even when um Steve Carell left the show because he left. That's right. Yeah. Season at the end of the seventh season, and even like his like farewell sort of at the end of the show, I was like, oh my god! I was like, I can't believe I'm crying over Steve Carell. <laughs> like, why is
1: this happening? It's so funny because <laughs> you do expect them to be super super light. And- I know it's really good but then they get that. you Gavin and Stacey's like that you should watch Gavin and Stacey yeah I know I've I told really you so many need... times you need to watch it I know I've got to listen but it's, it's one of those people who's just sorry one of those shows where you do get so attached and it deals mm-hmm. with some really like mm. infertility infertili- infertility infertility just sounds wrong doesn't it Infer- you mean in like not inf- being able to have children yeah. yeah but when you say infertility it just sounds wrong yeah. I'm very tired. Yeah. <laughs> and very stressed. Um but it just yeah, it deals with lots of issues like that, like mm. with all these things that you just don't expect from a f fu- and then like the next second you're laughing at it and then you're yeah. like, Oh my god, I want to cry. This is so sad. I know. Like, yeah, it's like, very clever.
0: I'm guessing you possibly aren't up to date with Brooklyn Nine Nine but mm, have you... I think we're only a few episodes behind. Okay, because I was like really, really behind. So oh I've my watched god. a few.
1: We don't have SBS in the UK. When am I – how am I going to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine season six? That's it. Moves off. (laughs) Done. Not happening.
0: (laughs) Um, No, but I don't know if you've seen the episode. There was an episode um, in the sixth season, if anyone hasn't watched it yet, where Jake and Amy are discussing whether or not they're (sighs) going to have children. You know, the first
1: thing I said, I was like, turn to Jack, and we're watching it together, of course, because it's our show. Yeah. I turned to him and I'm like, why the hell would you not discuss that before you (laughs) – get married, and then Terry walks through the door and he's like, why didn't you yeah. discuss that before you got married? And I was like, see? See? Yeah. You just do it. I know. Who doesn't do that? Oh my You've got to have
0: these discussions early on. Oh. I know. But... But, like, that was, you know, they had, like, some serious moments Mm. in there for these, like, Mm. two. Oh, my God. And then the whole rest of the episode is, like, so ridiculous. There's, like, a bomb scare in a hospital or something. And they do the little debate thing. Oh, Oh. my God. That was so funny. I know. (laughs) Even the
1: debate over their serious issue. I'm like, see? Sitcom. He's just, like, a little prepared. And he's got, like... um... Captain Holt had like the three other adjudicators on the yes, line. Like, I know. let me give you my registered debate moderator number. Oh, like, oh so, so, good. so good. I love that show so much. Plus, I know, so do I. You know, I'm going to have to watch it to like get over this. <laughs> and like, that's going to be my comfort show, I think. Yeah. Because, yeah, it is really, especially since they took Gavin and Stacey off Netflix in. In Australia. Australia, yeah, I should have given you my DVDs instead of picking them up and putting them in storage. Oh, that's alright. <laughs> oh my oh, gosh! Oh yeah, so
0: I can't watch it because it's not on Netflix, and you've I'm already put right, the DVDs No, because those in assholes storage. took it off yeah.
1: Netflix. Biggest travesty ever. I'm glad I'm leaving this country. It's it's
0: disgusting. (laughs) It's a punishment just for me because I didn't listen to you for like the year that it
1: was on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. No, it's very good. You'll enjoy it. Um, The other thing I've been doing, and I know this sounds silly because I'm like, I've been trying to watch stuff. But I had a bunch of stuff recorded on my fetch box, Mm. which obviously since we're moving, I have to give it back. But I really, really wanted to finish Victoria season three
0: because oh, that, right. that was
1: on BBC First and I didn't want to be in that weird period where I missed it on BBC First but then it had already been shown in the UK. Anyway, I did get to watch it all. Oh, good. It was so good and I really hope there's a fourth season because I love it so much. I think Gemma Cole is the name of the actress who plays Victoria. I could be wrong. Am I going to research? No. Uh, but she was so good and I've loved her this whole time and I think what was really interesting in this is Whenever you hear about Albert and Victoria, a lot of the time, um, mm. it's like this really romantic couple. And like I always think yeah. of them as being quite romantic. He did a like you go to Hyde Park in London, and there's this beautiful like Italian garden I found, yeah. and I read like a plaque that he like built that as a monument to her, and yeah. celebrates their They're love like or whatever. One of the great yeah. romances in yeah, the yeah. and like the royal she never re- she yeah. never she was in mourning all those years after he died. But what's been interesting in season three is that they explore a lot the troubles that they had as well. Um so by this stage I think they had like four kids and they have this huge fight in like the middle of the season about Mm. how their child is being raised. And it's just really interesting like the between the lines stuff like Victoria's watching Albert read with Bertie. because 'cause Mm. they're daughter and son of Victoria and Albert as well. So Vicky and Bertie.
0: That's so cute. Yeah,
1: it's so cute. Anyway, Bertie's really cute and he's trying to read and he keeps saying no that that isn't the letter and he's like it looks like it's moving and obviously now you're like oh, he's got dyslexia yeah and but she's like and Albert's like stop being silly or whatever but she's looking at him going like he's not no. ma- being silly he's not making it up because clearly he doesn't see things somehow. the same way yeah. um and i just think it's really interesting the way they do that they also did a really interesting thing about um there was some the foreign secretary guy and i don't know if he goes on to become prime minister but mm. he was having lots of affairs so they sort of discuss that like marriage and stuff and his Victoria and Albert see his relationships and his the way his marriage works which is the wife lives in their nice country estate and he can just go off and have all the affairs he wants Mm. like suits both parties they're happy with that she wants the power he has the status of a wife we're Mm. all good um and they sort of see that and they sort of talk about it and they're like no that's not what we want it's just very very interesting the way they talk a bit it gets a bit more beyond the royal stuff but then there's also things like the troubles with Ireland and like Mm. a couple of other uprisings and stuff like that so they still weave in that political stuff but it's a bit more about them as a couple and not just like we love each other yay or him dealing with the fact that she's the queen as well like often he will say like they're trying to do this to us and she's like I am the monarch like I am the queen and so they have fights about that also yeah it's like with the crown where Philip just can't only Albert does do a lot he is involved a lot Mm. and she does let him do a lot because back then she would have had even less like she's pregnant half the time she's having like six kids or whatever by the by the end of this season um but it's just it was very good and I think I don't know. I feel like I know that historic, his, uh, I know that historic stuff isn't usually your thing, but I feel like because you like the crown, you might like this. Yeah,
0: I do love all. I do love all the royal stuff, mm. and I ha- can't believe I don't think we've discussed this yet. Archie Harrison, and, and Windsor. Oh my
1: gosh! Do you like? Do you not? Yeah, look, I like it, but I do think like were they watching Riverdale? Like it just seems well, it's so American. I think it's very American it's cute, to give the
0: nickname as a name.
1: Mm-hmm. Like but Harrison is funny. a lovely name just by itself, I yeah, will say. I
0: think it's funny that they've given Harrison as his middle name when Harry's name isn't even Harrison. No. It's Henry.
1: It's Henry. But yeah. Harrison
0: means son of Harry.
1: So it's like they've done oh, this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Like a oh, play on I just words. love awesome. Meghan Markle. She can yeah. do it no look, okay. Do you think the rumours, because I know you've been listening to Shameless as well yep. and I listen every single Monday and, yes, um, Zara, I am on, I do want royal news. Don't worry about what Michelle says. Not that they <laughs> listen to this podcast. Anyway, um, they've been having, like, a little fight about it. Um, do you think it's true, the rumours, that the reason that William and Harry have sort of fallen out is because William had an affair? Like, I know we're we're, we're going beyond pop culture here, but I just don't know what to think. I don't want to believe it. I want
0: to I want to believe it. Because I want like I want William and Harry to be better than Charles,
1: you well, know? Yeah, Like, like I, I, want I want them want to, them to I want better. them to have seen what happened with their parents be like, mm, "We are not going to go down that and road." And see that's the thing also mm. is that
0: William was older. He so
1: he like knew. he knew he, like, he would had have had to own everything.
0: Yeah. Like, he, yeah, so like I really don't want it to be true. And <sighs> but I also maybe there are no rumors at all. They were like they just moved. That's what this is all based on. They're not it's living... It's so ridiculous. Wherever they were living before, they've moved to, like, some other And then house. people are
1: saying that the reason why the, the um, I guess, the palace is sort of in the background trying to get this feud between Megan and Kate going is, oh, I don't know. Is to, like, protect oh, it's William. it's so ridiculous. Yeah. I don't know. I'd like to just believe that... Um, that William is better than that because I really like Kate and I hope that he treats her right. Me anyway, too. Anyway, I, maybe one day we'll get a movie out of them. I don't know. I'm looking forward to the next season of The Crown. Me too. Oh, I know. So
0: I think, yeah, I mean, with everything with Meghan Markle and all of these rumours and even the baby and everything, have you seen all the memes It's like, I can't wait for season
1: 37 of The Crown? <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Actually, I've also seen this great meme that was like, oh, everyone's saying... Um, how well Archie's doing well yeah he's just been born into royalty and it's like yeah of course he's doing well I'd be doing well if I was born (laughs) into that life too or something like that which is quite funny but it was really funny my
0: family had this whole big debate about whether or not he was born a prince and I'm like no he hasn't been given a title like all (laughs) these things I was trying to like explain it and I actually referenced the
1: crown
0: (laughs) so I was like no and everything you know and we looked it up about like you know which of Harry and will's cousins like are princes Princes. or princesses or not it's very it's very interesting and
1: like the fact that like you know william became like a duke they were duke and duchess after not like prince. like it's just well kate could become a princess not exactly yet she's not princess but she'll she'll be queen yeah soon it's so crazy oh no i don't want liz to die oh lizzie (laughs) Um, yeah. So, oh, the only other thing I should say is that I finished my job after five years. So that was big. Um, obviously the whole moving overseas thing is big, but like
0: five years in one job is a long time. And if you haven't already seen it on Michelle's Instagram. Check out the gift that her co-workers got her. It's like a front
1: page of her career. It's, yeah, it's so cute. Yeah, so cool. I can't believe they did that. Like, yeah. yeah Going to prize it forever. It was really, really amazing. And yeah, I learnt a lot in that job. And I wrote a really long Instagram caption with some advice. For, I'll probably do a blog post as well. I feel like there's enough in there to do a blog post. Mm. But um, <laughs> when I have time to stop and breathe, because yeah, yeah, at the moment it's crazy anyway um oh so the only other thing i've been doing also is trying to read how it feels to float by helena fox because we are about to do an interview with her which will air in a few weeks Mm -hmm. i think um that book's amazing and i know i can't wait to read it you should listen to our episode in the future but also if you have a chance to read it before then do it so good Mm. it's amazing Mm.
0: well without further ado we'll move on to this episode's interview Bye.
1: Our guest today is an award-winning historian and author who has worked in academia, political speech writing, and broadcasting. Her book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, won the 2014 Stella Prize and the 2014 Nib Award for Literature, and was shortlisted for several other prizes. In 2018, she published the second book in her Democracy Trilogy about how women won the vote in Australia. We're so very pleased to be talking about that book, You Daughters of Freedom, with Dr Claire Wright today. Welcome. Hi, guys. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to talk about this book.
0: Yes, I I'm ashamed to say I don't know very much about this topic, so I'm very excited to learn all about it, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners are.
2: <laughs> well, that's certainly one of the reasons that I wrote the book, because you're not alone in that lack of knowledge about this particular area of Australia and indeed world history.
1: Actually, that I think that's the perfect way to start. I wanted to ask you about the banner that the book starts with, so that banner by Dora Meason Coates and that it's in Parliament House but so many people don't know about it in fact you didn't even know about it and I'm really fascinated to hear how that sparked
2: this book. Yeah that's right so you know I've been I'm an historian of long standing I've been in this job for over 25 years and uh, women's history is my specialty and And I've researched suffrage history for many years. And I'd even made a television documentary about how Australian women won the vote for ABC television, which went to air in 2012 called Utopia Girls. But I was very surprised to discover one day when I was at Parliament House in Canberra that there was this extraordinary artwork that I kind of stumbled across uh, that I'd never seen before and had never heard of, and I couldn't even really believe that that was true, that I, I could have, couldn't quite believe my own eyes, because it was clearly a very significant um, piece of material heritage, mm-hmm. otherwise why would it be in Parliament House in Canberra in the first place, uh, and mm-hmm. and I didn't really understand its iconography, um, and I only had, a, a, I had a, a vague notion as to what its message was but was astounded that i didn't know anything about the artist anything about how this extraordinary banner which was called the women's suffrage banner how it had come into being and it was really sort of my own ignorance and my shame at uh, at not knowing what this thing was that led me to want to delve deeper into its history and understand really everything about it how it had came into being Um, why the woman who painted it was in London when she did, uh, which it said on a little plaque next to it, it said, you know, painted in London in 1908 by Australian artist Dora Meeson Coates and carried in the great London suffragette processions. That was really all the information that was there. And the banner depicts two figures. So one of them, uh, they're in sort of Grecian allegorical uh, painting, um, and one of them is is Mother Britannia, and she's standing holding a trident and looking out into the distance, and she's draped in, in white Grecian robes. And then bending down next to her is a younger woman, uh, and she has her hand outstretched, and she's looking up to Mother Britannia. And she says, um, as as we know, because these words are painted across the top of the banner, it says, "Commonwealth of Australia, trust the women, Mother, as I have done." And so I wanted to know everything about that little phrase, what that meant, what it signified, uh, how this banner came into being. and uh, And that was really what kicked me off um, into the into this journey of discovery about the role of Australian women in the British suffragette movement. Wow.
1: (laughs) I love that. I love that as a starting point that, like you said, your own lack of knowledge about something would drive that. Yeah, it drives you you to research it and find out.
2: That's what history is. Um, History is a a journey of curiosity. It's all about the questions that you ask. And Mm. and the best starting point for uh, those questions is your own curiosity. Um, And, you know, you can sort of be uh, fairly confident that if you're curious about something, then there will be other people who will be curious about it as well, just because we're human beings and we enjoy stories and we particularly enjoy stories about things that we haven't heard about. Um, We get kind of tired of the familiar old narratives, um, whether those are kind of, you know, fairy tales that we're told as children or whether they're historical narratives that we get told year in, year out, or that we get taught in school and and um, year after year and uh, generation after generation. So I think that's that it is, that's the whole process of being an historian is is following the seeds of your own curiosity to find out what's going on.
0: I think that's a really nice way of putting it because I think a lot of people would... You know, automatically say that history and studying history and everything is, you know, about you know what what everyone already knows and like. The, you, like you said, the same stories that we all get told. And granted, I didn't, you know, study ancient history or modern history in high school or anything. But I feel like the only Australian history I ever did in school was about the first fleet. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And Ned Kelly. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and, and um, you were likely taught one version of that story as well Well, exactly um, yeah you know my first book the forgotten revels of eureka or the not my first book but the first part of this trilogy Mm -hmm. Uh, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, was about the role of women in the Eureka Stockade. Now, there's a classic uh, story that has been taught over and over again for 160 years. Um, It's been written many times. It's been performed um, as as movies and plays. It's been taught in schools. And yet it had always been written and taught as if the only people who were there were men. And when I went back to the primary, when I questioned that, that premise and went back to the primary sources, I discovered that that indeed that we, that was only was part of the story it's it's not untruthful that men was there, that men were there indeed they were but there were also a third of the population in Ballarat in 1854 when it happened were women and children which raises a whole another stream of questions about what they were doing there and how and involved they were and and I was able to follow that research thread all the way up to the point that a woman had been killed in the Eureka stockade which is not something that had ever been documented before, either in monuments or in school curriculum um, or in the history books, but there it is in the primary sources. And and so what many people told me when they finished reading that book was, you know, it's really disconcerting because I felt like I knew this story and reading your book makes me realise that I didn't know it at all. And so that makes me wonder how many other stories do, do I think that I know that I've only actually been taught a little part of, so it sort of it, it sort of um, actually stirs up all of your comfortable assumptions. Mm. I mean, that's so true because history is such a subjective thing,
1: and I'm going to absolutely butcher this famous quote, but isn't it the saying, "History is written by the victor"? So you know, we're only yeah. hearing one side of the story at at each at each moment in history which is really,
2: yeah, it's fascinating. Well, it, and, and it's even more than that because it's not just written by um, the victor, like the, if we're talking about the Eureka Stockade story, that, mm. the, 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 technically the victor was the British government. They were the ones who, who um, technically won. They killed more miners than were killed themselves and the, and, the, and the uprising was put down. But the story's really mostly been written from the perspective of the miners Um, and it's become um, a foundation story in Australian history because it's seen as the birthplace of Australian democracy because the the miners lost the battle but they won the war in terms of getting Mm. democratic rights that came out of it and yet even written in a sense from the perspective of the vanquished it was only part of the vanquished it was only the male members of the vanquished community So, um, so the powerful ones yeah so um, you know I think it's probably more um, correct to say rather than written by the victors is to say written by those who have most access to the power structures to tell their stories
1: yeah, yeah and, absolutely
2: and this is why we're getting accurate. and this is why we're getting so many more stories about our indigenous history as well, so we're hearing far more um, uh, women's stories, um, because so many more of our historians now are themselves women, and they're asking different questions than used to be written, asked by uh, the men who dominated the professions. And and now we're also getting more indigenous stories. And and um you know that political slogan, "White Australia has a black history," well, it's entirely true. And and there are um you know thousands and thousands of of stories. Uh, local, state and national to be told um, about the Indigenous perspective on on um, a range of stories that have been told before and that have never been told before. And, and those are all starting to come out too. And we have a much more rich and complex and layered uh, sense of our past um, than we've ever had before.
1: Absolutely. Mm.
2: Um, one of the other things I learnt while reading this was
1: how closely the suffrage movement was tied to the federation movement in Australia. So um, I remember learning about federation at school. I remember um, actually what took me back to my like year nine history class was um, hearing about the conventions, the federation conventions, because I remember learning about that at school. Um, But I had no idea about the role that um, suffrage played in that. So do you mind explaining a little bit? about how they were intertwined and why this was such an important thing internationally.
2: Yeah, so that, that's really the, the heart of this story um, that I tell in You Daughters of Freedom is the way in which Australia became a world leader in democratic practice because Australia was the first country in the world where women won full political equality, meaning the right to vote and the right to stand for parliament. So New Zealand women had won the right to vote in 1893. But in 1894, South Australian women, including Indigenous women, won the right to vote and to stand for Parliament. And it's kind of an hilarious story how that happened, um, which uh, I, I can tell later, but it doesn't answer your immediate question. The, the, um, the, the, the pertinent part of your question is that there, there had been suffrage um, campaigns uh, going all over the world it was an international movement uh, what to do about what was called the, the woman problem and the woman <laughs> problem was that women around the world were demanding their democratic rights they were Gosh, demanding how the right yeah, yeah no, <laughs> how dare up, they? you know uppity pes- upstarts um, <laughs> that they um that they were um, banding together in collectively um, in their own nations and internationally, having international conferences and 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 trying to come up with global solutions. To this issue of women being disenfranchised um, and that, that the fundamental principles of democracy, you know, no taxation without representation, government of the people, by the people, for the people, that these were all shown up as being utterly hypocritical when 50% of your population couldn't vote And so these women were getting, had increasing access to education um, in the last half of the 19th century, and a very vocal and very organised movement um, had started up around the world. Mm -hmm. And so when South Australia had this world-leading win in this international struggle, you know, it, it made the news internationally. Why it was so important for Australia is because unlike other countries around the world, we were on the verge of federation. We had our own domestic political issues that um, were precisely about the sort of things that the suffragists were talking about. Who has access to power? who Who is going to have a stake in the nation? Who are going to be called citizens and, and who's going to be excluded from citizenship? These were all um, not just gender questions in Australia, but these were larger questions because each of the colonies were were trying to figure out through the constitutional conventions that you mentioned in eighteen ninety seven how a federated Australia, when the colonies would come together to become one nation, how this was all going to work. And so at this time and so the the men, who, who were representing the colony of South Australia at the National Convention, were beholden to the wishes of the women who had voted them in. And these women were lobbying very hard to have, uni- firstly, universal suffrage, a universal franchise, meaning that everybody in the, who had the federal franchise, meaning could vote for um, the nation, new national parliament, that everybody had the same rights, um, so every, each colony um, had the same rights and that, the, that no colonies would lose any rights in making that uniform franchise. So that effectively meant that the rights that South Australian women had would have to be shared by every other colony, that South Australian women couldn't lose any of their rights. And what the South Australian delegate said is that if... Any of the South Australian citizens lost their rights, then South Australia wouldn't join the federation. So it would scuttle the whole process. So effectively, women's suffrage was made a precondition of a federated Australia, and 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 essentially a gun was held to the ha- to the heads of all of those um, so-called um, forefathers of our nation, the fathers of federation. Who didn't believe that women should have equal political rights and, and indeed that went through it was passed it became section 41 of the constitution and then when the new nation um, uh, made its franchise laws in, in, in the franchise act of 1902 um, it, th- these things were, de- were debated uh, but the constitution said that effectively women must have the vote And that's what happened. It was voted in. And that made Australia the world-leading nation in democratic rights. And there's one um, uh, qualification to that, which is incredibly important, which is that Indigenous women and men who had had rights in South Australia lost those rights through the same Act of Parliament, the Franchise Act because Indigenous people, as well as natives of other Asian and Pacific Island countries, were, were uh, deliberately excluded from the franchise. And so, uh, effectively, it, um, gender was no longer uh, a qualification or a disqualification to the franchise, but race was. Mm-hmm. But that really wasn't... Um, It was commented upon by some of the parliamentarians at the time. They knew it was happening. Many of them didn't think it was a good thing. They said things in parliament like, we've taken their land from them. We've dispossessed them um, of their traditional lands and, and their culture. How can we now take the vote away from Aboriginal people as well? But those views were overridden in order to get female franchise through and there was there was sort of no outcry about that around the world indeed it was the opposite australia was lauded around the world it was in the international spotlight for having found uh, a solution the most progressive the most forward thinking solution to this global woman problem wow <laughs> That's a lot to digest, Katie. It is. (laughs) I
0: just can't believe I never learnt any of this at school. Mm.
1: It's like Mm. a huge gap, but. It is. And, you know, the race stuff, too, is such a huge Mm. thing that we never learnt about at school. And I really hope that that's changing for future generations going through now but another thing I did want to discuss something which actually I'm sure we learned a lot of at school yeah. um, is the Anzac legend and what I found interesting Claire and um, you, you know you mentioned this in the book and I heard you speak about it at Geelong too but you've talked about the fact that this inspiring history this moment when Australia was at the forefront of um, you know political, conversation, and I I guess everyone was looking to us as progressive, um, is soon overshadowed by the First World War. And then subsequently, in our nation building, we've tended to build our legend of spirit on the ANZAC legend, rather than this time when we were a world leader. So why was it that story became such an important part of our nationhood rather than our success and our forward thinking. And yeah. do you think there's a way we can shape our national narrative a little bit differently into the future or is this sort of
2: where we're stuck now? Yeah. Okay. Well, two parts of that question and I'll take the mm. first part um, about about how it happened that um, the Anzac Legion came to overtake um, this idea of ourselves as being a forward-thinking nation. So so one of the things that's always said about Gallipoli is that this was the time when Australia proved itself on the international stage and that that, the the evidence of Australia's um, uh, worth and value as a nation was proved on the, on the beaches of Gallipoli through the courage and the sacrifice and the bravery of our young soldiers. Now, I'm not making casting any aspersions um, about the, the quality or of the value of those soldiers, but what my research has definitively shown is that claim that this was the time that Australia proved itself on the world stage, that's just wrong. Australia had well and truly proved itself globally. It was, um, was well-known, well-regarded, um, intimately studied political scientists, sociologists, journalists, politicians. They all came to Australia to see what was going on down here in this social laboratory. They wrote books about it. They wrote newspaper reports about it. They wrote um, academic um, articles about it. To, to see what was what, how Australia was figuring out, not just the problem of, of women's equality, but other pressing social issues of the day, like industrial equality and, and, and raising levels of, of um, eradicating poverty in the industrial working class. So Australia also had the, the world's first elected socialist government, which happened in 1910 very much on the back of the fact that women were now voters in Australia and that that women uh, were voted in the Labor Party. And uh, we had a lot of radical social legislation that was brought in, things like raising the age of consent uh, for um, for girls from 14 to 16, mm-hmm. bringing in laws uh, to protect food, um, pure food laws they were call- called, so that companies couldn't sell adulterated milk products that were killing infants and babies all over the world. So that there were... Um, uh, maternity allowances for for mothers ha- having babies and old aid, old aid pensions for uh, retirees, that the, the wages of workers were negotiated with their employers so they couldn't be exploited. All of these things were very new and considered to be part of this explosion in forward thinking, progressive, brave, courageous decision making and legislating that was going on in Australia. And these were the sorts of things that were being studied. And they were also the sorts of things that were being um, a, a, spruced, you know, evangelised by Australians who were going overseas. And, and two-thirds of my book is is about that. It's about the Australian women who went to London and became part of the British suffragette movement, which is really much more widely known even in Australia than than, um, anything about the Australian suffrage movement. So, you know, Emmeline Pankhurst and the breaking the windows and the woman throwing herself in front of the horse and dying and and letterbox bombings and all, all of that kind of thing. Well, it's much less readily known that Australian women went to London to act as leaders and inspiration and, and strategists and um, mobilisers of the British suffrage movement. And they were um, proclaiming the, the uh, advanced nature of Australian political institutions and trying to get Britain to follow their lead. And that takes us back to the banner. That's what those words meant, trust the women mother, as I have done. So they were loudly and confidently proclaiming to the world that what we were doing down here in Australia was better than anything that was being done in the rest of the world, particularly in England, that there was this kind of reversal. So Australian women went out into the world and they were adventurous and they were risk taking. And some of the stunts that these Australian suffragists who were working for the British suffragette movement came up with were, were extraordinary. And there was one woman called Muriel Matters um, who was known uh, globally at the time as that daring Australian girl for her particular <laughs> antics, um, which I can talk about um, a little later maybe. Um, but so it's it, it's all of this which can be easily documented, uh, the, the role that Australia played in world politics and the fact that Australia was so widely recognised and acknowledged as being a world leader. That just makes um, a lie um, of that claim that Gallipoli was aware Australian uh, approved itself on the world stage. But but what we know is that um, because something isn't true doesn't mean that it doesn't become the great basis for a myth. And so what happened uh, with, the, with ANZAC and um, coming along um, the First World War in 1914, uh, which is right on the back of when all of this is happening. Uh, you know, the great, these great movements that I'm talking about of Australian women going over to England and fighting as part of that movement are happening between 1905 and, and 1913. This is really the height of the British suffragette movement. And indeed, Emmeline Pankhurst's organisation calls a truce with the British government at the outbreak of war and places the war effort um, above the women's effort to gain their equality, and and that doesn't really happen in Australia. Australian most of the Australian suffrage suffragists are also anti-war, and um, they they actively campaign against conscription. But what comes out of the war, with all of that horror and grief and death and destruction, that comes from the war, is that we have a, a new sense of what it means to be Australian, and because what Australia has done has been to follow Britain into the war, you know, that famous expression of, of um, um, the Prime Minister at the time, Andrew Fisher, that they'll follow Britain to the last man, the last shilling. So this mm. sense of Australia following England instead of leading England, that becomes mm. the dominant narrative. And Australia becomes, once again, becomes the, wow. the, the colonial outpost rather than the global leader, and, and Australians lose that sense of themselves uh, as having been. Um, uh, they, don't, they don't lose it entirely at the time, but as the process of storytelling comes about, as, as the, the um, historians and journalists and other, other myth-makers start to look back on that period of time over the passage of years, One of those stories becomes privileged uh, over the other. And that's the story of male sacrifice, of male valour, of male risk-taking, over that story of of female sacrifice, um, not sacrificing their lives, although many of these suffragettes did put themselves in the face of danger, um, as I do document in in the book. They were... um, They were assaulted and and jailed uh, for their beliefs. But the the ways in which Australian women had been at the forefront of this movement towards a particular kind of Australian uh, self-consciousness and independence, that story gets lost. Uh, And that idea of ourselves and the nation that we were becoming at, at the original birth of the nation in 1901, gets lost in this new myth of the birth of the nation that Australia is born on the beaches of Gallipoli. And I think that that's a great shame. And so that comes to the second part of your question, what can we do about that? And well, one of the things that's happened over the last 20 years is there's been millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, poured from our federal government into the service of that ANZAC narrative. So, you know, we've just celebrated the centenary of World War One uh, from 2014 to 2018. Australia spent more money in commemorating that, that milestone than all of the other allied nations of the world put together, even though um, per capita we had much fewer casualties oh my gosh
0: yeah wow that's kind of a shocking
2: statistic
1: it is absolutely
2: and and you sort of have to ask yourself why like why do we keep telling that story (laughs) and not just telling it but resourcing it putting money into schools funding tours of school students to Gallipoli why do we keep having to tell that story of ourselves, that, that version of ourselves over and over again? And, and my feeling is it because it hides some essential truths. Um, the first one is that this nation, that, that Australia proved itself in a war that was fought overseas. Now, the original war that was fought in Australia was with our Indigenous people on mm. the frontiers, And that's something that our Australian War Memorial, that's a story that they still are not prepared to tell. The Australian War Memorial, even though they've just been promised another $500 million to uh, refurbish the galleries at the War Memorial, that that, um, there's no business case for why they need any kind of renovation or refurbishment or, or renovation, that the Australian War Memorial still refuse to tell tell the story of the frontier wars. They don't consider them to be a military operation that Australians were involved in, despite the fact that at the time, the primary evidence shows that the people, including the governors of Australia, were using military terminology in their um, directives about how to treat Indigenous people on the frontier. So that's the first story that we are hiding from as a nation by yeah. refusing to commemorate, by refusing to really reconcile with, um, that re- refusing to have a truth-telling about. And I think the second one is this story of Australia as being radically progressive in the first decades of its life as a nation and um, that we prefer to think of ourselves or we prefer to finance and back ourselves in terms of uh, this conservative, militaristic um, idea of ourselves as um, and what it means to be Australian, rather than these more progressive, forward-thinking um, uh, uh, kind of version of Australian independence, that was certainly it can certainly be backed up in fact. Yeah,
0: God, it is interesting, isn't it?
1: God damn it. Wow. It's amazing to think how different our national narrative would be had had that. The details changed, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Wow. And you and you asked what, what we can do about this. I mean, I think what we can do about it is that we can educate ourselves. We can, mm-hmm. we can read books like mine. We can read books like the one that's just come out by Judith Brett about how Australia – it's called um, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. And it's about Australia's world-leading innovations in democratic reform in terms of um, how our elections uh, have run. Uh, that we have the secret ballot that we have compulsory voting that we have compulsory electoral registration now these things all sound, sound kind of boring and technical but actually they are fundamental to what it means to live in a democracy and they are things that australians did and still do better than anywhere else in the world so instead of um, obsessing over australia's you know latest sporting win or whether one of our actors got a actor uh, got an award at a uh, uh, you know a foreign award ceremony why not be proud of ourselves for our political innovations and why not understand more about ourselves and our history from these uh, a broader perspective to and so one of one part of it is education and the other part of it is is lobbying our government not to pour endless amounts of money into propping up certain stories at the expense of others. and and to to become active, to be questioning, to go to, to take us back to the beginning, to be curious about what actually happened, to ask those questions. You know it's the last thing that politicians want you to do is to ask questions, particularly about the past, um, because it does mean that, Uh, certain assumptions and certain power structures uh, and and certain notions of the status quo are going to be upturned by learning about what really happened. And so asking questions is always our most powerful weapon. Yes,
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And, I mean, I'm still, like, super proud of Australia for having compulsory voting. Like, it just, when I speak to, you know, my British friend's um about brexit and things like that i just think yeah. how different would it be if you had compulsory voting yeah
0: or even I think, you know, I think you know, it's all the just campaigns the best.
1: to get people to enroll to
0: vote yeah in the us it's like if you had compulsory voting you wouldn't need to campaign for people yeah to vote. you spend like,
1: half your time campaign campaigning for, to get people to actually care enough to vote rather than to get them to engage on the issues that need to be discussed and yeah. addressed
2: just yeah that, yeah, that is. I've always is thought true.
0: compulsory voting was awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. That's another thing we can do. We can vote. We can make sure yeah. that we take our political process seriously. That we are engaged citizens. You know, when you when you read a book like *You Daughters of Freedom* and you realise how hard these women struggled over decades and against insurmountable obstacles to win the right to vote, the least you can do is turn up on polling day. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> I always think that. Take a, it seriously. Like, especially
2: yeah. as a woman, I always
1: think, like, we are so lucky to have the privilege of being able to vote. Yeah. I want to take it seriously and I want to make sure that my voice is heard. Mm-hmm. Um, And, yeah, it just, it really frustrates me when people don't or they treat it as a chore when really, you know, like like you said, so many people fought for that right. Yeah. we should We should consider ourselves really lucky to yeah. have that. Um, I'd really love to know, uh, a bit more about like any unusual little facts or information. What was the strangest thing you came across when you were researching your Daughters of Freedom?
2: Oh, the strangest thing, hey? Um, well, I just love being in the archives so much, you know, the whole, I'm just like a massive nerd. So just... (laughs) Research is just absolutely uh, my favourite thing, and and maybe this doesn't sound so strange, but one of the things that I was really curious to find out is just how much, um, you know, we we we're, we're very aware these days about how outspoken women um, are trolled by in social media, uh, and how much pressure is put on them to um, to not speak up, to not raise their voices, to not voice their opinions, and. I guess for me, just realizing that it's always been that way—that this is nothing mm. new—that that, that uh, it's it's a constant fight um, to have, be taken seriously, to not be diminished, to not be um, particularly to be trivialized and and um, characterized by you know horrible cartoons and language that is a put down um, for, for for outspoken women. Um, they've always been demonised and, you know, the, the expression in the, uh, for the suffragists, they were called the shrieking sisterhood. It was, you know, <laughs> one of a number of expressions that were used, you know, like they're just a bunch of squawking galahs, not that mm. they are actually politically active citizens proclaiming their rights. And, and we find that today's feminists are still tarred with this kind of brush, uh, still called these kinds of names and still considered to just be, you know, that they're just um, all that Alan Jones stuff about just, you know, trying to destroy the joint and, um, and fright bats. That was an expression that was used recently um, to describe a bunch of people like Clem Ford and Jane Caro and who are really just modern day incarnations of the suffragettes um, and the Australian suffragists and, and, uh, you know, the fact that these women that we see now, uh, these women in the past who advocated for the vote, you know, we see them in their long gowns with their button up um, collars and their big hats and they look kind of, you know, totally fuddy-duddy and like, you know, super boring and, and, um, <laughs> and kind of, uh, you know, buttoned up and, and prim. But they were actually warriors, you know, they actually were so brave and they stood up on the hustings. They would stand up on a chair in the middle of Hyde Park in London and they would speak to thousands of people and they and rocks were thrown at their heads and eggs and and, uh, and, you know, and they were carted off and taken to prison and force fed. And so, you know, one thing is just that we didn't have that in Australia. We didn't have to have that because we had a political process and we had this kind of convergence of feminism and federalism that allowed for a different kind of process, but that women put themselves up for that over and over again. And, uh, and just, you know, to me um, researching, and I guess the strangest thing for me was to, to gauge my own reaction to seeing how courageous these women were. Um, And, um, you know, there are many other ways that you could look at them in terms of being racist. You know, they weren't fighting for the rights of Indigenous women or other women of colour. Um, but they're also heroes in, in my mind because they just they just never took a backward step and they just kept the big picture in mind. And the big picture was the emancipation of women and children from the, the various forms of slavery and bondage that they lived in.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it is right to say that for their time they, they were they were warriors, absolutely. Mm. Um, and I think, I think you've done a great job in the book of acknowledging the problematic elements there, um, especially around race, while still also acknowledging the
2: amazing work these women did as well. Um, well, I think that yeah. in the end all you can do is to tell the truth. You know, if you're going to yeah. have integrity in your story, um you don't live out the hard bits uh or the bits that that make the truth uncomfortable because the the truth is uncomfortable um and it can be um it can be inspiring and it can it can lead your thinking in new and different directions, like lots of people have said to me after reading the book, wow, like it made me feel proud to be an Australian for the first time in forever because we're so used to like just feeling like Australia is just Getting it wrong over and over again. Bit of a, and a joke. It, yeah. And a bit of a yep, a bit of a joke, and um, and and uh, you know, with the human rights abuses that we perpetuate, mm. and following countries into war, um, the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, and and um, and that you know we're a rich, resource-rich country, uh, that just should be doing better than it is. And so it's hard to be proud of ourselves a, a, a lot. And people have read my book and said, it makes me realize that we were better once. So, you know, what happened? Now, that's yeah. a really great question. It's a really great question. It's a really complicated answer that requires thinking and, and, and research and, and more questioning. But, um, you know, if this book can get people thinking in that way, then I'm really happy.
1: Absolutely I'm, I'm really interested about your research actually because um, we're quite nerdy too, but I'm really fascinated to know the whole the whole time I was um, when I was reading I just kept thinking like are you researching this bit by bit are you writing it as you go are you you know sticking to some sort of plan I just couldn't yeah. imagine because you've got so much detail yeah. in this book it's just incredible
2: how did you do it? Um, Yeah, well, my process is pretty much that I research really intensively. So when I'm in a research phase, I'm doing pretty much nothing else but researching, and I'm researching from the archives, so from the primary sources. Um, I don't tend to read a lot of secondary material, meaning Mm -hmm. the books that other historians have read. I just really immerse myself in the archives, and so for this book that meant... Um, a lot of newspaper research, uh, reading all of the um, suffrage journals that were being written at the time. One thing about uh, researching suffrage history is that these women did a lot of writing. They were educated, they were middle class, they had time on their hands and they wrote everything down. So there's a huge paper trail. They had to be their own propagandists. They had to, (laughs) to write their... They had to write their own history, in a sense, because uh, no one was going to do it for them. And um, Probably and they were than also them
0: not having written it down, and you trying to figure out what exactly yeah.
2: happened. <laughs> no. So it, it's a it's a great period for historians to look into because there's just so much material. Um, mm-hmm. And then because they also were um, were having to attract attention to themselves in the press and and um, to get a movement started. And they were great publicists and publicity seekers. There's a lot of coverage in the newspapers, both in Australia and in England. And then I also looked at a lot of um, archives that are in the National Library of Australia and and archives that are in, in London at the Women's Library that are the primary sources left by suffragists at the time, letters, diaries, um, and, and some um, really fantastic collections. So my process is to steep myself, absolutely immerse myself in that material so that I actually feel like I'm living through that time myself, I'm looking for as many little details that give us a sense of who these people were, what what motivated them, what shaped their thinking, what their aspirations were, what their aims were, and to really understand them as characters, you know, as as, yeah. as people. And then also because they are people to watch how they changed over time. And then when I feel like, well, you've never got enough. I mean, the one the rule number one of being a researcher is you never have enough. But more to the point, you get, you get to the stage where um, either you've run out of research funds or you're getting close to the deadline that your publisher wants your manuscript. And so you've got to come <laughs> no. to a kind of, arbitrary point where you stop researching and start writing and then and then for me it's a process of organizing all of my notes and 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 working out what the key themes are i don't know those things before i start the research because it's the archives that lead me to what my themes are Um, because i'm i'm writing from the ground up and um so once i realize what what is the language that people keep using what are the metaphors they're talking about what are the events that keep being written about? That's what gives me a sense of, of how to shape the story. And, um, yeah, what was important and, and from that? there I get a kind of structural outline and then I start kind of filling it in and then I sit down and I just write. And that's when I sometimes use secondary sources as well to fill in some of the gaps in my knowledge. Um, and, um, and so I kind of have secondary sources there at my ready, and... Um, and for context and, and but I'm writing exclusively from the secondary sources. And and this book this book actually happened in Lightning Speed. It's it's um it's about hundred and sixty thousand words long, which is about five hundred pages. And um, from the start of research to having a book on the shelf was eighteen months. Uh, oh my goodness I, God. F- <sighs> I, I spent four months writing it so I wrote about um, 10,000 words a week for four months. And um, I, I, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody who wants to lead a sane oh. and healthy life. Uh, you must have was, been so fatigued by the end. It was, it was pretty oh. full on.
1: That um,
2: huge. But oh, I also um, – it was also really yeah. kind of marvellous to be able to just go into this total writing bubble um, that I was able to do because I had the time and space to do it as part of my academic job. I'm, I'm an um, associate professor of history at La Trobe University and I'm on a research grant. I, so I don't have teaching. Um, my, my kids are all older now. Um, my husband is extremely supportive of my working life. And um, so I was able to kind of just throw myself into a really intensive period of writing. And when I came out the other end, I've got the most brilliant editor in the world, Mandy <laughs> at Text Publishing, and then we, we took it from there. Um, so it was a really intense kind of uh, period birthing this book. Um, I made a joke at my book launch that it was a bit like having a baby in the taxi on the way to the hospital. Like you know, fantastic, but also a little bit traumatic, um but uh but yeah, it, she's out in the world now and 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 walking on her own two feet this book. Wow.
1: I imagine it you know in some ways, I think it's better to be able to do it intensively because you can focus so much more. I mean, um, I've just written a true crime podcast, which is nowhere near that word length, but even then, you know, like I'd try and do a bit at work between stories and a newsroom is not a very good place to try and get something long done anyway. Um, but especially not when your desk faces everybody else and they think that you're just there to constantly answer their questions. So I'd try to get in the zone. I'd get all my, like my boss's archives out and I'd get all my notes out and then I'd start getting into
2: it. And then someone would be like, can I get your help with this? And I'd be like, Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, I, 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 I can't God... work. I can't work that way at all. Yeah. I have an office at the university, and I put myself in it, and I close the door, and um, and that's it. I'm I'm in the zone, which doesn't mean I'm I, I'm often doing a whole lot of other things as well. Um, I keep a lot of different balls up in the air juggling. I was <laughs> making a podcast mm-hmm. series for Radio National while I was doing this book, and um, and keeping up with a number of other Um, commitments, but in terms of the writing, I would just close the door and um, I I didn't ever try to write little bits and pieces in between other stuff. I tend to find that I can do all of those sorts of other process-based kind of jobs, um, sort of, you know, admin and communication and meetings and, and the back end of old projects and getting new projects off the ground. I can do all of that in the mornings. Um, i 've never written a decent word between before three o'clock in the afternoon, and then I know that by three I just have to be writing and then i 'll usually write through till six or seven and and one night a week i'll i won 't go home um, and i 'll just keep writing until uh, midnight, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. if needs be. Um, and wow. um, and that will really kind of break the back of the word limit that that week mm. by doing that. That might be a 5,000-word day. And um, and so, um, yeah, but if I had to, I, I don't know, the whole idea of an open plan office just makes me <laughs> want to scream and run in the opposite direction. <laughs> I'm very yeah, well, privileged. I, I All of this must... just goes to show that I'm very privileged to have – Um, this space in a university to do this kind of work. Absolutely. I
1: must say I'm looking forward to some time away from office life and the ability to think clearly. Um, I mean, the newsroom was fine when I was just, you know, a cadet and just doing my own thing. But once I started to take on more responsibility and then suddenly everyone is coming to you for advice and answers and things are happening all the time, it's just, just the last few months have become... bit too much but the the one the one week I got to work intensively on my project was amazing and so much fun and also the most challenging thing I've ever done yeah Uh, I was completely obsessed with it so I can't even imagine how in in that short space of time like I just I just couldn't think of
2: anything else it was in my dreams and that was a week so oh I yeah I really admire your work it's incredible my husband used to say like uh, I turned down every social event you know for the months that I was writing I I didn't go out at night I turned down every social event my husband would go along to them and people would say where's Claire and he'd say oh she's in 1911 but she'll be back (laughs) (laughs) I love that well, I was in nineteen
1: ninety nine, which wasn't wasn't as quite as far away, but yeah. I'm I'm very lucky that my partner would just have food for me when I came home and yeah, yeah it was very good. Otherwise I I would have just eaten like wheat bix or something for dinner each night. So he made sure I was fed
2: Nice. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> One him. night
1: he like made me have a bath, like bath bomb and all that sort of stuff. He's like, Go have a bath, relax, oh, that's stop. So yeah, that, that was really good. Um, sorry, Caitlin.
0: Yes, well, I think one thing that might be good to, you know, almost wrap up this conversation is um, mm.
1: both of your books
0: are critically and publicly acclaimed, but, you know, I mean, including myself, maybe even a lot of people can be a bit apprehensive when they see, like, a history book on the shelf or someone's mm. recommending it to them. Yeah. So especially when they're not, like, you know, you and Michelle
1: super and nerdy super and
0: into research and all and of this. And yeah,
1: New Daughters of Freedom is a, a chunky book. Yeah, too. it's beautiful, but oh, it's big.
0: So, but <laughs> yeah. how do you write such engaging nonfiction that keeps people invested in this story?
2: I found my voice in these two books. You know, I wrote a PhD. Mm-hmm. My first book is based on my PhD. And, um, and I think that's still a very readable and engaging um, um, book. But uh, I wrote it largely for an academic audience. And what mm. I really knew with these two books is that even though my work is based um, yeah. on scholarship and that I am an academic and I, um, my environment is an academic one, that I wanted the, the research that I had done to be communicated to a broad audience And I knew what that meant was that I needed to focus on the story. And I think what most history books do, um, particularly ones written by um, academics, is that they're more um, thematically or argument-driven. And Mm. that's what tends to lead to that more kind of dry, detached kind of style of writing that's a bit flat um, and can be a bit dense at times, whereas I, I was really interested in telling the story, telling the story of the women at the Eureka Stockade, telling the story of how Australian women got the right to vote and then took their message to the rest of the world. And I think when you concentrate on that and you use sort of techniques of storytelling um, where really what you're trying to do is have the reader get to the end of the chapter and say, I want to I know what happens next. I don't want to put mm-hmm. the book down because I want to know what happens next. If you can do that, then you know that they're invested, and that means they care. They care about the story. They care about the characters, and um, and that to me was what I was attempting to do when I started writing that way. I didn't know whether I could do it, but apparently I can because yeah. <laughs> um, because the books of you can of um, <laughs> uh, have, uh, have held people's attention. And and it is my um, it's a great honour to me that people tell me that they don't usually read history. They they hated history in school and it's not something they'd gravitate towards. But they've been recommended it by somebody else who said, you know, don't be intimidated by the fact that it's 500 pages long and looks like it's a doorstop. That they've read it in a weekend um, and that it reads like a novel. And so then people who would naturally be at a, um, attracted to history, go to it and find that they've actually found it really engaging, and that they've learnt something they didn't know, and also been entertained. And um, and to me, that's really what I aim to do, uh, and and feel like I've I've found my voice. And now that I've done that, I just want to write all the time. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, you do have a real gift for that. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I would much rather read a history book that's 500 pages than, like, a fantasy book that's 500 pages. Like, to me, yeah, like, reading your book was so much more engaging than, say, like, I started Game of Thrones and I'm, like, 100 pages in and I never got past that. It's, like, a 1,000 pages and – Oh, I just can't. Um, but you know, I think it is really it is really good that it's reaching new audiences as well. And people, like you said, who would not usually think of themselves as being into history or even into reading nonfiction. Mm, Um I've been recommended um your first book. I've been recommended that so many times from people who I wouldn't expect to tell
2: me to read that. Um, so I think, yeah, that's that's really, really fascinating. And and then, and then the exciting thing the exciting thing about my first book about the Forgotten Rebels of Eureka is that that's now being adapted into a television drama series and um, with a, a Hollywood screenwriter in, attached to the project. And, you know, this is the kind of uh, – f- to me feels like the gift of having reached a wider audience is that now yeah. it has the opportunity to reach an even wider audience um, because, obviously, a television audience is going to um, completely outstrip any kind of um, literary <laughs> audience. And, uh, and that even though it's a drama, it's not a documentary. Um, so, you know, there will be some uh, – I'm involved in, in the production and the writing, so there's going to be some creative license. Essentially, it's the same story and essentially that story is a female-driven one. It's a narrative that's led by strong uh, female characters and we learn about their the ways in which they have in the past made history and I think that that is really um, important for our whole culture um, but particularly for, for young women as well to see that um, that women in the past have um, – have, Well, I can't use another expression for it—that women make history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, there was a young adult or a a younger reader edition of um, the the book published as well, wasn't there? Yes. Yeah, that's really exciting.
2: So I adapted The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka into a young adult version called We Are the Rebels. Um, And one of the reasons is because the Eureka story is still taught in schools at grade five and year nine and year 12, if you do Australian history. Uh, and so this just gives um, teachers and students a, a, another kind of resource to be able to access the story in different ways. Um, I think a more a, a more immediate and engaging way of understanding the story, and certainly a more truthful one because all the characters who were there are now are now um, written into the story, rather than being half of them being written out.
1: Mm, absolutely. I just have so many questions. You are incredible to talk to, and an absolute font of knowledge about this and I, I really know. I do hope as well we that, have barely said anything yeah no. <laughs> so that just we means I talk a note. lot <laughs> no no that's that's fine look honestly no one's listening to this for us they're listening for the people that we have on hopefully so um I think that everyone will hopefully have learned a lot um and be inspired to learn a little bit more about our Australian history that we mm. can really be proud of um and hopefully also um, we get a TV version of You Daughters of Freedom as well because I feel, like, connected to these women too now. Like, they are characters I want to see on screen. So, Yay. yeah, you've done a wonderful job. Please don't stop writing. Please keep writing really cool history stories. Make history cool again. Um, <laughs> make history great again. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm really excited to to see what you work on next. This is It's
2: going to be fantastic. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great privilege to talk to you today.
1: Um, Claire, just before you go, can yeah. you just let everyone, our listeners know where they can find
2: you online? Okay. So listeners can find me online at my website, www.clairwright.com.au. Uh, they can get information about my books and my television shows and my radio podcasts there. And uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Claire A. Wright. And on Instagram at Claire Wright Historian and on Facebook at Claire Wright Historian. So I've got all the socials.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Excellent.
2: Thank you so much for joining us. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks.
1: Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Better Words. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you left a rating or a view on iTunes. It really would mean the world to us. And you can
0: also find us at our website, betterwordspodcast.com, and on social media at BetterWordsPod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Bye! Bye!